Father God, we're thankful for who you are and what you're doing in our lives, Lord. Thank you for just the way that you're working through this time, Lord. It's, it's crazy for us, but you're in control, and we just can only imagine um, from your perspective, Lord, that you uh, just want us to cling to you and trust in you, and that's what we want to do. So, Lord, thank you again that we get to worship you. Thank you for the technology that allows us to come together and, and worship and hear your word uh, through these devices, through social media, website, and all that, Lord. So we thank you for blessing us with that. Lord, we just thank you for your word as we read it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm going to talk about uh, the joy and sorrow of the triumphal entry, or Palm Sunday. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 12. Turn there in your Bibles. Again, if you feel comfortable, you can stand. I'll stay seated just for this time. But uh, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 12. And it reads, As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the possession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God, Hosanna, for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God, Hosanna, in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they said. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet, from the Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you for this time that we have. We thank you for your word. We pray that you prepare our hearts and our mind to receive what you have in store, Lord. Thank you for your spirit. Holy Spirit, you obviously are welcome here. Penetrate our hearts, Lord. Lord, we just thank you again for the freedom still yet to come together and hear your word. I pray, Lord, that whatever you want me to say, I say, and whatever you don't, that I don't. Lord, we just thank you. We pray that we don't leave here, our houses, our rooms, Wherever we're listening to this unchanged, we're thankful for who you are. Thank you for reconnecting us back to you through your son's blood. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So typically when Christians uh, get to the scripture dealing with Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry of Jesus, we tend to handle the text in just a handful of ways. We either talk about the humility of Jesus, which is very real and very true. And we contrast that to the other kings in the first century um, that would come in and through horses, having people run out and say, bow your knee, come to your knee as the king enter. Or a lot of times we hurry up and use Palm Sunday just to get to Good Friday to talk about his death on the cross. So we can talk about Easter, the resurrection Sunday. But this week, and it's probably because of what we're all going through sitting at home ourselves and and trying to figure out what the new norm or the new abnormal is, I found that in this text, there's both joy and sorrow in, in this text, and they both are present at the same time. So I titled it just 
to keep on track the joy and sorrow of the triumphant entry. Joy and celebration of Christ, the joy of the fulfillment of prophecy, the joy that we are returned back to God, and yet the heartache and the sorrow of what's to come when Jesus dies on the cross. And throughout this week, I've found that um, many people that I've talked to are both feeling joy and sorrow as they are sitting at home. Um, the big excitement is going a walk around the block or riding your bikes, playing in the backyard. That's the new excitement. And the sorrow is not being able to see friends face to face. There's a couple of us, a couple of you have done Zoom for your life group. And although we're thankful that we have that ability, it's still not the same. You can't hug, you can't handshake, you can't high five. You can't even really sit in the same room if someone gets out of the camera view. But yet, at the same time, it's both joy and sorrow. And part of the life group that I'm a part of, um, when someone who is a teacher mentioned that although they're excited for the time that they have extra time with their children and their, their spouse, the thought of some of the kids going home to homes that aren't ideal situations. It's the same concerns that teachers and administration admin have when going on Christmas break. What will these kids who have less than desirable homes do over the three weeks for Christmas break, the two weeks for Easter break? But here we are sitting at home for an indefinite amount of time. So how can we have joy when others are having sorrow? And how can we have sorrow when other people are having joy? Even thinking about those who are in retirement homes that can't have any visitors, who have to sit Cross from a window on the phone and talking to one another. Even thinking about this past week, you may have had a bad morning and a good afternoon. Did the bad morning replace the good afternoon or did the good morning replace the bad morning? Or was it a mix-up or was it uh, an experience of both? But then I started thinking about even in marriages. Does a bad moment in a marriage, just one afternoon with an argument, ruin the entire marriage? No, or what about a bad marriage that has gone on vacation? The couple's gone on vacation. Does that make it better? Maybe just for a moment. And I really think that's where addictions come from, where we try to push out and cram out and avoid sorrow and pain. We avoid it by coming up with something else to replace this temporary relief. Perhaps it's a perspective, but really, instead of trying to take one or the other and look at the morning was bad, sorrowful, but the afternoon was good and joyful. I think it's the same. And I think it's that friction that buffs out and sands out and molds us. Uh, For Christmas, this past Christmas, uh, one of the kids got a rock tumbler. Um, If you don't know what that is, it's where you take these ugly rocks and you put it in this tumbler that rolls with sand and water. And you're supposed to do this over a 28-day period, and it's supposed to act and accelerate this 200, 300-year process. But right there on the box, right there on the instruction, it says this. It says, do not skip any steps. Do not lower the duration of days. Do not alter what we have asked you to do. I thought that was pretty good. Don't skip any of the steps, any of the duration of days. And it says, friction is your friend. So what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take these nasty, ugly-looking rocks. You throw them in the tumbler with some water, and it tumbles the first time for seven days. 
And that first time, you take these dirty rocks out, and now they're clean, but they're still ugly. Then you're supposed to replace the water and add some sand, and this time another uh, seven days. And the whole time you're just waiting there, and if you're like me, you just stare at it for a little bit and think, is this going to do anything? And you keep doing that, and you follow all of the steps, and at the end you have these beautiful rocks. And then on the last one it says, if you really want it to shine, put it in again for another 21 days. That's 42 days of waiting for rocks to come about. I found myself probably less patient than my kids trying to skip those days just so I can hurry up and make the jewelry that we're supposed to. But I think even as we approach the text from Matthew 21, I'm thankful that Jesus didn't skip any of the days, any of the steps of Passion Week. He, he followed and fulfilled all the prophecies that were prophesied 500, 1,000 years before he even did this. He took both the joy and the sorrow at the same time and didn't take one or the other, but took them both side by side. So as we go back through this, think about both the joy and the sorrow that must, be, uh, must have been experienced at the same time. Again, verse 1, it talks about as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem. They came to the, a town, Bethpage, on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is on the west side coming into Jerusalem. Historians said that you wouldn't have seen anything until you got to the very top. And it goes on in the scripture to say, Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. And as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say the Lord needs them. And he will immediately let you take them. What's interesting is this is six days before the Passover feast festival that would have taken place. So everybody near and far would have all been showing up at Jerusalem at this time. So it wouldn't have been an ordinary day. It would have been extremely busy. And not only that, Jesus was a wanted man. There, if, if it was such a thing at the time, there would have been most wanted posters all around pinned up for, for Jesus. But yet, here he is, full of humility, but already planned out. He told his disciples to go get the, the donkey and the colt. And Matthew talks about this specifically. The colt would have never been ridden. And so I don't know whether or not Jesus supernaturally prepared uh, the owner to get this, or he made plans and sent someone ahead, but he just simply said, tell them that the Lord needs it. In the chapter before this, it, it reminds us that Jesus had predicted his death for the third time. And what I find interesting is right after he predicts his death, John and James get an argument about who's the greatest. I always imagine it like Jesus saying, yes, I'm going to die. This is my prediction for the third time. And John and James are like, that's great. So who's the best of us? So this joy and sorrow at the same time, it must have been an excitement time. The disciples would have probably have known that Jesus was most wanted. The plot to get him, to kill him, was out there. But why now? Why all of a sudden now, all of the time leading up before this, Jesus told everyone, don't tell what I have done. My time has not yet come. If you go back to his first miracle when he talks about when he changes water into wine and Mary says, oh, Jesus, do something. He says, why are you bothering me? My time has not come. But yet, here's the time. This humble man appears almost to go out on the road, on the show, to make a big procession of himself. But yet, here he is riding on a donkey. The joy of everyone celebrating him, yet the sorrow of knowing what's to come 
in just a few days. And what would the disciples have been feeling at this time? The joy, finally, they get to figure out who's the best of them, who gets to stand next to him, but yet the sorrow of what's really going to happen. In verse 5, it goes on and says, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And this goes back to Zechariah 9.9 when it was predicted about 520 years before this. It says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous, victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Verse 6 goes on, it says, The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw the garments over the colt, and he sat on it. So again, at some point, Jesus had set this up. But I'm still trying to go back and, and really imagine the whole scene coming up from the Mount of Olives. And, it, and it's about, it's less than a mile to go down into the Kindron Valley, to go up into Jerusalem, back into Jerusalem. And here are all these people. They're noticing something different. Here's Jesus. And he's coming. And first the disciples throw the garments onto the donkey. And now here he's riding on the colt. But then in verse 9, there's a quick transition. Jesus was the center of the procession. And the people all around him were shouting, Praise God. And the other translations, Hosanna for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna means save now. And I know that I found that I fell into this trap of thinking that these are the same people who are shouting or celebrating, crying out, save now, save now. And maybe even perhaps I would have told you that later on in a couple of days, they're the ones who will say, crucify, crucify. And some of them, probably, but not all of them. There was different types of people that would show up. It's almost, and it's an awful illustration, but it's almost like you see something on fire and you can't look away. You're either for it or not for it. You like it, but you're just interested and intrigued. So there was a variety of people. But it's interesting, this Hosanna, Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, and I'll read it to you. It says, please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. I find that's been my prayer the last couple of weeks. Stuck at home, if you will. Just, Lord, save us. And even many people have commented that these are perhaps the end times. I, I don't know. None of us know when the end times are. But, but what I've noticed is that my, my prayer and my plea, Lord, please save us. I'm wondering what I'm actually asking God to save us from. I think if I'm honest, sometimes I'm trying to ask God to save me or us from <clears throat> sorrow. But sorrow is not a bad thing. Sadness is not a bad thing. It is if you camp in it, live in it, become depressed, anxious from it. But sorrow and sadness really brings out feelings of what's going on, a reminder of our desperate need for a Savior. And that's exactly what Christ came to do. So as the psalmist writes in 118, please, Lord, please save us. These people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. They were thinking of the oppression that they were facing now. Little did they know that the joy they were hoping for came at the expense of the sorrow of Jesus on the cross. Now, again, not all those people who were crying out, crucify. Some of us, 
might be thinking like the disciples did the, 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 the disciples say Hosanna as they were walking along with Jesus. We don't know. But even at the end, were the disciples the ones crying out crucify? No, they went in hiding. It was both joy and sorrow at the same time. And just, again, preparing for this message, just thinking about this joy and this sorrow, both the joy of the extra time at home, which I mentioned last week, that this is perhaps what we've been praying for, that God would answer our prayers, that we would spend more time. And yet the sorrow of all those who home is the last place they would want to be. Again, going back, if you... A couple of days ago, we had a rough morning. Cereal was spilt. Milk was spilt on the floor. Not once, not twice, but three times. Because all three kids had to jump in on spilling their bowls of cereal. And not only that, the orange juice. Who leaves out the orange juice? Who drank the last of it? Learning to coexist all day long has been a struggle. Yet then there are moments. I took a picture and I posted on Instagram trying to pick up my Instagram game, of Ryder, my oldest, reading to Aria and Nora. It was a moment of peace. But I think that's the lie of what social media can do and media in general can do. I took this perfect picture. I actually took seven pictures to get the lighting right because I'm awful at taking pictures. But this moment where they were all looking at the book together and they were all smiling. But... I think our life is more than just a photo. I think it's more of a film. Because 10 minutes ago, they were fighting over which book to read. And who got to read it. And who got to sit in the middle. And who had the most comfortable pillow. And whose blanket was the softest. I didn't record that picture. I didn't record that scene. What I did is I waited for the joyful moment. But you know what I noticed? Is that whenever I sat back and I look and I took the moment, that sorrow, that hardship, that argument, they worked it out themselves. Now, I could have intervened at any moment which I wanted to and yell at everybody and tell them to go to their rooms. Except the girls share a room, so I don't know how that would have worked out. But they worked it out. And now they have found that now they look forward to reading just them. Natalie, my wife, offered to read him a book. And our youngest said, no thanks, Mom. Ryder will do it. Of course, that broke Natalie's heart. But the joy of it. Now, what would have happened in this silly scene that I painted if we would have stepped in and not let them work it out? So I think about this. And I think about the joy and the sorrow. And and I, I think a lot of times we try to camp out on sorrow and say, I am in a sorrowful, I am in a sad, I am in a pitiful moment. I put my flag here. And this is the season we're in. And then we have the super happy, excited people. No, this is great. This is joyful. Everything will be great. We will get extra baking time. I'll write a book. I'll start a new show, a new series. I will begin all these new adventures. But the reality is, is we won't do either or. A little bit from both. There will be hard mornings with spilt milk. And there will be joyful moments when we capture it. The same thing with this triumphal entry. There's both joy and sorrow. And it's not one is greater than the other. It's just that they both combine. They both exist to sand out and smooth us out. And that's why in verse 10 it says the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. Now it's quick to move through that. And, and, and I think when we're trying to break down the text 
It's good to reread it and go over it again. The entire city is in a hyperbole, an exaggeration. Everybody who was showing up, everyone who was showing up for Passover meal was in an uproar. Some of them were saying, who is this? They asked, what is going on? They're waiting for this moment, confused and not sure. And then the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So I just want to take a few moments to talk about these crowds. Plural, because there was different crowds showing up. Now, this is just how, where my mind went, and I could be completely wrong. But I tried to imagine specific people in the crowd that we've come across in the Gospels. The different groups I wrote down is there were those who were cheering the Hosanna, save us now, that were excited, that knew exactly who Jesus was, knew exactly the prophecy and all the prophecy leading up, cheering, and they knew exactly what was going on. Then there were those who were just curious or reluctant, and those who were just, I wonder what this is all about. I've heard this guy, I'm not sure. And then, of course, the other group who were completely and utterly against Jesus. So I imagine from John 9, the blind man, Jesus had just healed healed him probably six months to nine months ago. If you remember the story, he was blind and he healed him and and the religious leaders were all upset that that he was healed and when he healed him and on what day he healed them, even so much so that they... They said, no, that's fake. That's not even the right guy. They even brought in his parents and said, is this your son? And they're like, yeah, it's our son. We would know our son. So I imagine this guy who, who's only had his sight for maybe nine months would be there shouting out Hosanna with his parents. I go back to John, John 4, when the royal official who came to see Jesus and said, Jesus, you got to come and heal my son. He's awfully sick. And if you remember, Jesus said, I don't need to come. He is healed. And while we were going through that series, where we were going through John I remember specifically reading for the first time that the official went back to his business because Jesus said, you can go on and do what you want. I already took care of it. My inclination would have been to run home to not only to make sure it was true, but to see him, to embrace him. I imagine that the royal officials there with his son pointing out at Jesus on the donkey and saying, look, son, that man healed you and he didn't even come home to heal you. I imagine... All of the people that were blind, all of, especially the lady who, who, who had been bleeding for years and years. Remember the story when she barely touched the hem of his robe and Jesus said, someone here touched me. I imagine that she would have been there crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. I would imagine all of the people that had an encounter with Jesus who believed in him was there crying out to him. Then I think about the other group, the group that was reluctant. I think of the young, young, rich ruler. You remember him? He was the one who said, I've kept all these rules and laws. What must I do? And Jesus told him, you must give up everything and be willing to give up to follow me. And he just walked away. I would imagine that he was there thinking, who is that guy? Is that real? I remember my last encounter with him and didn't go so well. What about the several people who stopped following Christ? Because he said, you must drink of my blood and eat of my body. You remember that? That was quickly after he just fed 5,000 plus people with a couple of pieces of bread and a couple of parts of fish and fed the entire crowd. And then the next morning when they said, we want more food. And he said, that you must drink of my blood and eat of my body. And 
probably more than half left, they would have been there. What about all those who, from the outside, the entire earthly ministry of Jesus just kind of watched and didn't believe? They would have been there. What did they say as he entered in this triumphal entry? Some probably thought he is who he claims to be. Probably right, people right there on the spot said, you know what, this must be the guy. Both this joy and sorrow, but where's the sorrow? I think of the chief priest and the Pharisees who had already plotted to kill Jesus. Those who despised Jesus. Later on in Luke, and we'll get that on good, to that on Good Friday, when Saifah says, one man must die so that way the whole nation must live. And really, he wasn't knowing that he was saying what was going to happen to Jesus. He just wanted to get rid of him. I think both this joy and sorrow at the same time is taking place, just like it takes place in our life. And, and it's not that we're trying to get rid of the sorrow for the sake of joy. It's seeing the joy during the time of sorrow. I like what Oswald, Chamber, Oswald Chambers wrote. Uh, in his devotion, it's from June 25th on sorrow in this, a little section. He says, as a saint of God or a Christian, my attitude towards sorrow and difficulty should not be to ask that he, they be prevented, but to ask that God protect me so that I may remain what he created me to be in spite of all my fires of sorrow. Oswald Chambers is saying, you know, I... I don't want to be different from the sorrow unless it's for him. I'm praying that God, in spite of these fires, I, he prays out, please prevent me, protect me from not doing it. So again, going back to that rock tumbler at the beginning, we really want to skip some days to get, get ahead. Even when you plant flowers, plant a garden, you just wish you could snap your fingers and get the fruit from it. But it's a long process. And during this quarantine time, this stay-at-home charge, I was talking to a friend. And I said, the worst thing I think that could happen after this is that we are unchanged. That at the end, when we are allowed to meet together, have fellowship together on Sundays and the rest of the week, that we treat this as just a sorrow that we wish we could skip over. But this sorrow that we have and this joy that we have, if it can just mold us and shape us so that way we can grow closer to Christ, I think is all that he wants from us. And I'm not to say that there are people who are dying from this disease and other diseases at this time. There's not people who are depressed and lonely and sad. All that is very real. But the reminder that Christ is still on the throne That on this Palm Sunday, he came in humble, both joy and sorrow with people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, people who despised him, people who questioned him, yet to fulfill the prophecy because of his faithfulness. So my prayer is that we remain faithful during this time, that we don't try to forget about the sorrow and erase it just for the sake of the joy, but we take the sorrow and the joy and allow God to work in and of us. So we don't just skip one for the other. It's even changed the way that I've been praying for people and for myself and for my family. Many times I've prayed, Lord, when someone's sick, kill them immediately. Get them through this. Get past the storm, whatever it is. But now it's not, 
Yes, Lord, that's, that's our desire. But what is your desire? If this is the time to mold us and shape us to be more like you, then don't. Going back, it's that whole conversation that Peter had when, when Jesus wants to wash Peter's feet. And at first Peter says, no, 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 you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're saying. You must let me do this to be whole. And then he says, oh, then if you're not just my feet, but my whole body. To be completely changed during this time. So our prayer for you is, again, to admit when you're feeling down and sad. And be honest about it. But don't live there. And celebrate when there's a joyful time. But don't just live there. Both sorrow and joy coexisting together, molding us and bringing us. And that's the same experience that Jesus had as he was coming in, knowing that this Passion Week leading up to the death was both sorrowful and joyful at the same time. Joyful because we have been returned back to a relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ and sorrow that our Savior had to be nailed on the cross for my sin, for yours. And that is what brings us and molds us together. And again, as Oswald Chambers says, my attitude towards sorrow and difficulty should not be to ask that they are prevented, but to ask that God protect me so that I may remain what he created me to be in spite of all the fires and sorrow. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for who you are and what you're doing in our lives, Lord. Thank you for your triumphal entry, not only to fulfill the prophecy, but for all to see that you came in. Even as you were a wanted man, even even as those who wanted to get rid of you and kill you, yet you were so faithful and are faithful, Lord. Thank you, you are faithful when we are not. Thank you for both the sorrow and the joy, and yet you are able to use all of it to shape us, to mold us, for your glory. As you begin a good work in us, you will see it to completion as you tell us, Lord. So Lord, let us correct any areas of our life and our thinking during this time to focus on you. Thank you for your grace and mercy that every time we slip and fall and make mistake and sin and just come short of your glory, Lord, that you're gracious, full of grace and mercy, Lord. Let us also share in that grace and mercy to one another. In our conversations, on the phone, through texts, through Zoom, social media, and in place in our families, Lord. Let us recognize that you are using this time, this season, to shape us and mold us. And Lord, at the end of this, Lord, our prayer is that we don't go back to our old ways. That we just grow more dependent on you to recognize how sovereign and great you are. So Lord, as you continue to work in our lives, Lord, let us be open to it, Lord. Let us just see what it is you have for us. Lord, let us admit our sin. Let us celebrate in the victory in you. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.